Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Before we get started this week, I want to let you know about some free sessions I'm offering every month. I'd love for you to join me for Gratitude and Wonder this coming Friday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Everyone's asked to bring a piece of music that moves them, which we'll share with each other and discuss. Sunday at noon Eastern, I'm holding this month's creative check-in session, which will consist of some prompts, sharing our current projects, and laser coaching as applicable. Both sessions are free and open to the public. You'll find links to register in your podcast app. If you'd like to be the first to find out about new things I'm up to and hear who's on the podcast each week, I have a mailing list for just that reason. Sign up and you'll also get my series on the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up as a bonus. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review to help others find me. Each one is worth its weight in gold and gratitude. That link is in your app too. And with that, on with the show. Dieter Randolph started his career in the family business of ministry. He's since left that field and has taken on a wide variety of jobs from car sales to working for Google. These days, he's a writer, speaker, coach, teacher, and podcaster. Along the way, he's refined his ideas of what it means to live a meaningful life, including what leads us in the direction of meaning and how we get thrown off course. Those ideas are also the basis of his book, Meaning Fulfilled. Dieter talks with me about everything from the concept of something bigger than ourselves to how our resistance to boredom can choke our creativity and the importance of seeing each other as inherently worthy, valid human beings and listening to each other's stories. Here's my conversation with Dieter Randolph. Dieter, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. I'm very eager to hear your story today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really happy to be here with you today. So I always start out by asking everybody how they got their creative start. Were you a creative kid? Did you find something, you know, later in life after believing that you were never creative? What's what's your story? (laughs) You know, that's that's kind of a funny question for me. I think that it's one of those things where it's like asking someone who likes sports, why they like sports. You know, I, I wasn't that kid, you know, but it just sort of, that was what spoke to me from as early as I can remember the things that sparked my interest or curiosity or passion or whatever you want to call it were things in the creative end of things. I was always interested in music and art and, Things like that. And I love that the ability of someone to make someone else laugh, you know, these kinds of things interested me far more than how fast you could run or whether or not you could throw or catch a ball or or some of the things that the other kids my age might have been interested in. Not that it was bad. And I certainly didn't have the wherewithal to even look down my nose at it. It just didn't occur to me. It didn't spark anything for me. So I knew I wanted to do those kinds of things. I wanted to write as soon as I could learn how to read, you know, those sorts of things. And I have to say that it, it probably helped a little bit that my parents and my grandparents are ministers. And so there's this sense of if you can get up in front of a group of people and talk about something that's bigger than you and inspire those people to think about that too, that's a good thing to do. You know what I mean? There's, there's that, you know, it's a family business. And so that's part of the, the uh, proclivity as well, I suppose. That's I've never heard anybody call that a family business, but that's great. (laughs) (laughs) 
And you ended up in the family business, at least for a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those things where um, I want to be very clear that I have nothing against any of it. And in fact, I'm very pro-church. However, I also recognize that church has been uh, the banner under which a lot of really, really terrible things have happened and a lot of judgment and fear and hate and all that. And obviously, I'm not a supporter of that. But to, to go back to it, um, it's like if, you're, if your parents are plumbers and your grandparents are plumbers, you're probably going to be relatively comfortable with a pipe wrench. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing because that's what gets talked about around the dinner table. And that's what, that's what, you know, when you have a family trip, it's probably because someone's going to some conference, you know. So this is the deal, you know, over and over again. This is the life pros and cons to that, of course. I mean, when you're a teenager and you're convinced that your parents are crazy. You know, meanwhile, there's, you know, every Sunday morning, there's 250, 300 people going, you know, your parents are the best people in the world. You start to think you're crazy. You know, there's, there's pros and cons, but I have to say that it's one of those things where this is how we express ourselves in this family. This is what you're, uh, you're, you're oriented towards, you know, that kind of thing. Nobody was pressuring me uh, uh, deliberately let's say, but there was an environmental pressure where this is what grownups do. And I want to be a grownup. And so I'll do that too. In addition to that, it felt very, very important to me and continues to feel very, very important to me to, as I said before, have a concept of something bigger than you and bring that to bear on your life. Now, I still call that bigger something God, but I don't care if somebody else says life or the universe or something like truth, justice, beauty, love, art. That's fine with me. I can't believe in a God who cares about brand recognition. You know, so it doesn't matter to me. And in fact, that's not the point. The point is, is there something bigger than you? And are you doing something about that? If everybody in the world had that, I don't need them to agree with me and my particular picadillos about how you do it. I don't care. It's about, wouldn't it be a great world if people had a concept of something bigger than them that didn't involve how much money was in their bank account, you know? And so that spoke to me too. And with all of those things going in the pot, at a very, very early age, I was a youth leader in my church. And, you know, I was elected regional representative and international officer of whatever it was. And so as a teenager, I got flown all over the country to go speak at places and plan retreats and do all that super overachiever thing. And you get that, that payoff of, you know, there's a crowd of people, everybody's clapping, it's working, there's the thing. And so reinforcement upon reinforcement. And, uh, a lot of ways, it was a really positive experience. I started seminary really early. Uh, I met my wife when we were both teens in the teen group, you know, and, and a million years ago now. <laughs> but I mean, I was like textbook, this is the life kind of a thing to the point where before I was 21 years old, I was an ordained minister. My wife and I had gotten married. We had a baby on the way and we were running a storefront church. So yeah, it's a lot, right? That's some serious overachieving right there. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And as I say, there were some really beautiful, fulfilling things about that. On the other hand, it became more and more clear to me, being a minister in the field, so to speak, that my experience of church, which was that this is an open and accepting thing. I happen to come from a denomination that doesn't use things like judgment, doesn't even believe in hell. So nobody's going there. You know, these kinds of things. That stuff wasn't happening for me. But I began to realize that, you know what, there's a whole rest of the world that has no concept of that. And when you say you're a minister, they think about hate, fear, racism, sexism, 
oh boy, all kinds of things. And some of that's justified and a lot of it's not. And that's just the way it is. It's like a lot of things, you know? And so I began to realize that this bothered me more and more and more because that word church and words like ministry, Bible, you know, these kinds of things, no matter what your intentions are, they end up becoming a wall instead of a bridge. And it bothered me so much that I quit doing it. And so for a period of time, when I was in my mid-20s, let's say, I guess it's roundabout when it started, I just got a regular job. And in fact, I got many regular jobs because, you know, here we are, young family trying to make it work with no experience of the real world. You know, not really. I mean, I have a college degree, but it's in theology. You know, it's one of those things. And so I did everything. I did computer stuff and I sold used cars and I, you know, whatever you could do, I did everything. And it was a really interesting way to, to get into the world. I would think so. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining that, you know, when, when you grow up with all of those creative intentions, directions, whatever the right word is there with the combination of the family business that, mm -hmm. you know, in your family that, that you had to have seen a lot of overlap there. I mean, ministers get to write, they get to go do a lot of creative problem solving, all that kind of stuff. And I have to think then that that actually probably made you pretty good at all of the other things that you were trying because you had that background of communicating and looking at things through a very different lens, but I could be wrong about that. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it has served me well. And it's a funny kind of a thing. <clears throat> There's a Johnny Carson quote where he was talking to Steve Martin and they were doing a commercial break. And Johnny Carson said, you're going to use everything you ever learn. I'm doing magic tricks that I learned when I was a little kid. You know, there's this thing of everything is practice for life. And by the way, there's a lesson there because whatever you're doing right now is practice for whatever kind of life you want. So a lot of people are practicing stuff they don't actually want more of, but that's a side note, you know? Um, I have found that my ability to break something down, to express myself in writing and in speaking, to deal with people. And I think the fundamental thing is, I know this is not the typical religious experience based on outer judgment, but my experience with religion is it's taught me to see everybody as an equal, to really try to put myself in somebody else's shoes. Radical mercy, I'm not saying I'm good at it because I, I sure slip up at it, but that's the ideal. And when you can look at people that way, it helps. It, those skills are transferable to anything, right? Um, and the better you get at being able to express yourself, being in touch with something, having a concept of something bigger than you, even if it's something like, the corporate mission. Well, that's not awesome, but it makes you a good worker. You know, <laughs> those kinds of things, whatever those things are, I have found that they translate. And it's a funny thing because I ended up in a situation where for that middle period in my life's journey, the thing that put food on the table and put a roof over everybody's head and all that was computer stuff. I found that I had an aptitude for those kinds of things. And I worked at startups and I, uh, I ended up working at Google and I did, you know, I did the whole, the whole gamut of those kinds of nerdy stuff, you know? And what I found was it was really interesting because everybody else in the room has got a degree in computer science or robotics or something. And here's me with my dumb little theology degree holding my own with them even though there are things that they know and think about and are interested in that just don't do it for me. 
But the fact that I have these other things that I've been exposed to put me in a good situation. And so to anybody listening, I would say that it's okay if it feels like you're not sure if what you're doing is helping you. You're learning things that are going to get you where you need to go. It's it's never not the case. I I have kind of seen that in my own life in various places. And I think I like the Johnny Carson quote, you know, you're, <laughs> you're nothing. I've heard this before, you know, nothing is wasted. And, yeah, and exactly. I think that's a great, a great way to, to look at it that, you know, even if you don't like what you're doing right now, you're still learning something that you can transfer somewhere else, even if it's more about interpersonal dynamics than the actual work that you're doing, you're still learning something that you can take somewhere else. A hundred percent. And in fact, you have a choice. You can decide to absolutely loathe what you're doing. You can complain about it, how much your job reeks, how much the people around you are idiots. You can hate everything. And I get it. You know, I've worked some really bleak jobs. I get it. But on the other hand, when you decide to hate or even to dislike, we don't even have to use a strong word, you're shutting yourself off because you're saying to your brain and your heart, this is not me. This has nothing to teach me. And so you'll be right. You won't learn a thing. But what I have found is that life has a wonderful way of giving you exactly what you need to learn. I'm not saying that if something bad happens, you brought it on yourself. or something. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is you tend to draw to yourself the lessons that you're ready for so that you can grow. And what I have found for sure is that life has a way of turning up the volume. I think almost everybody has an experience of, you know, I went through this thing over and over again, and it just got weirder and weirder and worse and worse. And all of a sudden, I finally got sick of being sick of whatever that was. And I learned, I got to escape velocity and I got onto something else. Life is like that. Life will turn up the volume. And so you can hate and, and disparage whatever it is, the relationship, the job, the whatever. And as long as you do, you are guaranteed to stay in it and it will probably get worse. But on the other hand, if you go, wait a minute, yeah, this does suck, but what if I'm here to learn something? What if I'm here to teach something? You know, I'm not saying put up with abuse. I want to be very, very clear about I'm not saying that. Then that's a different situation. But I am saying that it could very well be that there is someone in that situation who can teach you something that will help you grow. And it could very well be, and in fact, almost certainly is the case, that you're there to model something. There's something in your heart that that situation could benefit from. You might make that company a better place by, by doing the thing. And so sometimes when people come to me for counseling, for example, and they say, how can I get out of this situation, whether it's a job, or relationship? whatever it is. How can I get out of this situation? And I, I will often say, look, if you know for sure that you have done your absolute best to learn and to teach, those are your two responsibilities. If you've done those two things and you can say in clear conscience, absolutely, I've done everything I can, then you can go. But you probably won't have to ask those questions because you will find that you just automatically get ejected from it. Something will happen. Either you'll get the promotion or you'll get fired. <laughs> You know, and both of those things can be an incredible blessing because mm-hmm. you're ready for something new. That's the deal. And I've learned that the easy way and I've learned that the hard way. Yeah, I've, I've had some experience with that, too. And I think I think it's very true. I think when when the time comes, it comes for a reason. <laughs> You've done everything you can do in whatever capacity it is that you were meant to do it. And it's time to go do something else now. Yeah. And and. I have also found that that old saw, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear applies to a lot of things. When you're ready for something, 
you will find it presenting itself to you. Now, I think that a lot of us need to learn how to exercise those listening muscles. You know, I mean, every love story is about that, isn't it? Every Nora Ephron movie is about how I didn't realize that it was you that I loved the whole time. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, that's the plot of so many things, right? And the reason that our hearts uh, resonate with that plot is because it's a problem that we're working out too. We need to get better at listening. But the truth is that one way or another, your destiny, if you want to call it that, whatever, will find you. Your growth, let's say, will find you. What I found was, I got to a place in the computer business that I was making some money. I was doing good. I was getting promotions. The performance reviews were good. You know, by any metric, it was working out. But I wasn't very happy. You know, and there's lots of reasons that we know that money can't buy happiness. And there's lots to talk about in that end of things. But in general, I just kind of felt empty. You know, am I, is this, am I just this machine for making money? You know, and it it didn't make me a good husband or father. It didn't make me a good person. It didn't make me a good anything except earner. And you you begin to realize there's a reason why companies call it human resources, because you're a resource, like a truck or a stapler, you know, and that kind of stinks, right? So I began to feel that. And I got to this place where a couple of things happened in rapid succession. And I think they had been happening, but I didn't know it until I got in touch with that feeling of, wait, I don't like this. I'm ready for something else to happen. A couple of things happened all at once. I was sitting in the car in the parking lot at work, and I had gotten to this place where ah, I'd get to work and I'd you know do the thing, coffee in the morning, listen to the radio, get to work, blah, blah, blah. And I'd have to sit in the parking lot for a second and kind of, all right, here we go. Psych myself up. Do I have my security badge? Do I have my little lunchbox? My, my whatever? Am I ready to do this? Because I don't want to be here. I just want to go home or in fact, anywhere, but here we go. And I looked, two, two things happened that one same morning. I looked around and I saw that there were, I don't know, a dozen other people in their cars doing the same thing. Or at least it looked like mm-hmm. to me, it's like, okay, here we go. And I got out of my car and I did the dumb walk through the parking garage up to the door. And I walked past a car that had that bumper sticker. And you've probably seen it before. What if they gave a war and nobody came? Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's an old bumper sticker. I've seen it a lot of times. But I thought to myself, what if they gave a corporation and nobody came? In other <laughs> words, you know, I'm not saying there should be a walkout or whatever, although sometimes that's healthy. I am saying what if this is the, the, the sum total of the attitudes of everybody in here? Yeah, of course it's bleak because everybody thinks it's supposed to be bleak. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And look, I don't, I'm not still at that job. It was a bleak job, but I changed. And that started to change things for me at work. And what started to happen is because I gave myself permission to think bigger thoughts, to try to find some kind of creative moment in some way. I didn't have to even do anything about it. The desire and the, 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 the willingness to let myself have that desire seemed to be enough. And what started to happen is people started to find me. I'd be in some meeting and this happened. I can't tell you how many times, you know, you'd go in the little meeting room and somebody would say, hey, can you stick around after the meeting? I want to talk to you about something. Yeah, sure, whatever. And I would think it would be about the getting the TPS reports together or whatever thing, you know. And then the meeting would end and the person would say, okay, now that's just you and me. I'm going through a divorce and I wonder what do you think about this and then the other? Or what do you think happens after we die? And these are things you're not supposed to talk about 
with HR, you know, you can get <laughs> fired for this stuff. And so it was this funny, like underground thing that started to happen where I would say, Hey, let's, uh, let's go for a walk around the campus, the corporate campus, and we'll walk and talk, you know, and there's these, these secret things. And I wasn't doing anything unethical by any stretch, but it's just not, you're not supposed to talk about these things. But what I found was that that was so much more fulfilling than anything else. And so I started to go, okay, well, I've got this I don't want to do church, at least not in the way that I thought. And I didn't know that there was another option because I knew I couldn't do it the way my parents did it and my grandparents did it because that wasn't that that machine didn't put out a product that I wanted to participate in, you know. But I thought, well, that doesn't mean you can't have these thoughts. And I got to this place where I realized that, you know, you probably know this, but the word church comes from the Greek and it, the, the real word is ecclesia, you know, like ecclesiastical. Mm-hmm. It comes from that word. And it means a community of called out people. And that has two meanings. It means that we feel called by something bigger than ourselves, but also that we call each other out. In other words, when you're acting like a jerk, I hold you accountable for that. I call you out because that's what love does. And I realized that that's the definition of church. It has nothing to do with a building. And in fact, my spiritual heroes, so to speak, and I would argue probably everybody's spiritual heroes, did something that fulfilled that definition, but they didn't have a building they went to on Sunday morning. Church doesn't mean here's where we go and we feel guilty for a while and then we go have brunch. (laughs) That's a terrible definition, although that's most people's definition when you boil it down. And I started to say, okay, well, what does it look like when it is a community? What does it look like if we don't even use the word? Because the word has been used to talk about something that really weirds people out. So I'm a big believer in taking back your language. But on the other hand, I I want to be able to communicate. And so I don't care about the word. Just like I don't care what people call the bigger thing. Just like I don't need people to agree with me. It's not interesting to me. I don't need you to sign something before we can be friends. You know, it's weird. And so that was the kind of garbage that I got sick of in the corporate world. So why would I want it in my spiritual practice or my creative practice or my whatever you call it? And so I started to do things differently and this opened up a new chapter in my life. And so here I am talking to you and I'm really, really grateful for it. It's an amazing story. And I'm it's just, just now, as you, you know, said the same thing that happened in, in the corporate world, I never really thought about it before, but You know, so much corporate culture is about, you know, rah, rah, our stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I've only worked one. Yeah, I think it was just the one aside from temp gigs, you know, like in college and on summers and whatever. I only ever had one job that was a truly corporate for profit job. Uh And part of the reason that I have never gone back to for profit is that I got so tired of hearing the word revenue that I was just like, I can't, I cannot, (laughs) I cannot, I cannot be here for revenue. I need to be here for something bigger than that. Yes. And, and yet, you know, you do find that, that culture that, you know, you're supposed to be a believer in the corporate stuff in a similar way as you're supposed to be a believer in all of the church stuff. And I'd never thought about that before. And like, how, how is it that human beings are so, or seem to be so primed to want to be in that kind of environment or to create that kind of environment, whether or not everyone who's in it can really 
get with the whole rah-rah, I'm wearing my swag, I'm, you know, doing the right thing kind <laughs> of program. I think that we have been conditioned for that. And I don't believe in some big conspiracy. That's not what I mean. I think it's a gradual evolutionary in the sense that we we worked into it, not evolutionary in the sense that it's particularly better. Um, it's been a process. And I think that it starts in a lot of little ways. But just as you said, there are tremendous parallels between what go on in the corporate world and what go on in the in the mainstream church world to the point where you drive by a, a new church building and it looks a lot like a corporate campus. You can't even tell the difference from the building. It used to be that there was like a vocabulary of architecture where you could say, oh, this building is dedicated to God's stuff. This building is dedicated to banking stuff. For example, this building is dedicated to learning stuff. Like, so, you know, it's a school, it's a, it's a church, it's a, it's whatever, but that is not, they're all getting blurred into this generic corporate thing. Just like the people in it are being blurred into this generic corporate thing. There's this basic philosophy that you can find in any arena that for some reason, that one guy is better than everybody else. And you see it in the, the, the fact that the CEO of a company makes so many hundreds of times more salary than the person that's driving the truck, for example. And, you know, there's a lot to say about that. And that's probably not the purpose of our conversation today. But the <laughs> point is, do you really think that that person works that many hundreds of times harder? Nope. Or that they're that many hundreds of times smarter. So we just all just decided. And it's like, what if they gave a corporation and nobody came? We've just all decided that you're better than me. And mm -hmm. it's the CEO or it's the, the religious professional. Well, I've grown up around ministers and I can tell you they have just as many problems as anybody else. Doctors get sick. You know, stuff happens. It's one of those things where the structure ought to be a little bit flatter if it was going to mirror what's in our hearts. but. I think we've been conditioned that that this is just the way that we do things. And I think that it, it's been a gradual process of going, if I can get you to believe that you're supposed to make yourself miserable, whether it's spiritually miserable or financially miserable, like you got to pay your dues. If I can get you to believe that and that there is some external eventual reward and the only way to get there is by suffering. Well, I can get you to do anything, anything. And in fact, it's a wonderful self-perpetuating cycle because it's like, well, I guess if I can hurt myself even more then I'm even more worthy. Now, was I just talking about the corporation or was I just talking about church? You can't tell because it's the same philosophy. I would argue that that's not the way that us human beings are wired. That's not really what's in our hearts, which is why it sucks. If you were built for misery, misery would feel comfortable. It would feel like room temperature. But the fact that stuff that hurts, hurts is proof that this is not the way it has to be. But it's the way that, that I think that we accept that things are supposed to be. But I think that part of it can change very quickly when we start aiming for different things. We have been told that a happy person is someone who can tell people what to do. We've been told that a happy person is someone who has a lot of money. Well, you know, I've known a lot of tyrants in my life who don't seem happy. And I've known a lot of wealthy people who don't seem happy. You can be miserable in a private jet. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I, I like to point out is like, I don't know if you've ever seen these, you know, Real Housewives of Hollywood or Beverly Hills or Real Housewives of Atlanta. There's a, there's a whole franchise of these shows. Mm -hmm. I'm not recommending anyone watches them. But 
what I will point out is inevitably what you have is people who have buckets of money and they've had all the right surgeries to look however they're supposed to look. They've got anything they want to have and more, and they're on TV, they're getting attention. But not only are they miserable, but it seems like they're dedicated to making everyone else miserable. I think that that part of the, the change for us, the change towards happiness, can happen when we decouple the concept of external material stuff, success, and happiness. You know people who have money who ain't happy, and you know people who don't have anything who are happy. And to put that another way, you can have a very sweet, wonderful life that does not involve a Maserati. Yeah. I'm not saying it's bad. Toys are fun. But when toys, when you think a toy can tell you who you are, you will be mistaken. I remember when I was a little kid and I really thought that getting this particular BMX bike was going to be it for me. Man, it was like the Christmas stories, like the Red Rider BB gun thing. It was like, this is this is it. So I probably, I probably just destroyed my parents badgering them about it. It was this was the bike, you know? And I think everybody's got a story like that where there's this one real banger Christmas present or whatever present. You know, this is the thing. And I got the bike and it was awesome for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And I'll tell you, I have no idea what happened to that bike. I don't know where it is. Well, there's a lot of things like that because stuff can't tell you who you are. Yeah. And that's the lesson. When we get yeah. that, we can, we stop being controllable. And, you know, in your book, Meaning Fulfilled, which is the kind of book that I just sat down and basically inhaled. You, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you say a lot about things that can't tell you who you are, mm -hmm. you know, and I think what was it? I think you have a line that's something like, if, if anything can leave you, it can't tell you who you are. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I think that we try to, we try to define ourselves by stuff that goes away, you know, and it's such a funny thing to do. If it can go, then it's not definitive. Let us get to the place where we stop defining ourselves by our scars, for example. And that seems extreme, but think about it. You know, how many people, when you meet them at a party, when you say, how you doing, they tell you this terrible tale of all of these bad things. And I want to be an empathetic, sensitive, caring person. But on the other hand, that's not what I want to see about you. And you know exactly what I mean, where you see people that are trading their miseries like baseball cards. You know, oh, you got that. What about this? Your leg, my eye. You wouldn't believe how terrible my kids are. And this bill I got to pay. And it's almost like it's once again. We have been trained that misery equals eventual success. And so it's no surprise that people trade miseries when they talk. But let us get to the place where instead of defining ourselves by what has gone away, we define ourselves by what has remained. Yeah, you know what? Maybe you did have a, a heartbreak. And I'm sorry about that, of course. But look who you are now. Let's figure out who you are now. You know, because there's this amazing thing that happens in every hero's story when they don't get what they want. And I think we miss that because we're supposed to, I get what I want, and that means that I'm good. That's not what makes you good. The moment the hero becomes a hero is almost always the moment when the hero realizes they're not going to get what they thought they wanted. Luke Skywalker would have liked to hang out with Obi-Wan Kenobi a little while longer. You know, Frodo didn't want that ring. 
you know, Harry Potter would have liked to hang out with his mom. You know, it's one of those things where it's, it's every story, the stories that we think about in the movies, the stories in the Bible, the stories in every wisdom literature and the story of your and my lives. The definitive moment is often the moment when we don't get what we want because it's in that moment that our ego gets out of the way. And we go, oh, wait a minute. What if life is not about me and my ego getting justified? What if love, for example, has to do with getting outside of a comfort zone? Because love is really inconvenient, for example. It's a pain. But, oh, man, art, creativity, following your dreams, these are not things that have to do with validation. Can you imagine Van Gogh going, oh, man, I really hope that people like this. And I'm not going to paint stuff that nobody likes, you know? Well, guess what? You know, I mean, and that's every artist and that's every writer and that's every celebrity, not celebrity, but every, every person who's famous for being good, let's say celebrity was the wrong word entirely, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But, but it's that. So I think that let's get to a place where we define ourselves by, yeah, that didn't work out at all, but look what I figured out. I'm, I'm stronger now. You know, I thought that that thing could define me, but it's gone. And here I am. Well, I just learned something through that process. And look, I'm not saying that people should go looking for heartache, but I am saying that everybody has some, and it might be a better story than you think it is when you look at what has remained after the garbage has been taken out. Right. And I'm even thinking, you know, you gave Luke Skywalker as an example, Luke Skywalker, not only doesn't get what he wants, you know, he he wants to know who his father is and turns out. <laughs> yeah. That's not the thing at all, man. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. holy cow on top yeah. of this is not the father I had imagined. It's like, wait mm-hmm. a minute. I came from this. Yeah. Wait, well, what? It's, yeah. And it's that beautiful reversal. And as funny as it is, I mean, we know now that George Lucas was pretty deliberate about doing that whole Joseph Campbell hero's journey Mm -hmm. thing. And and that's the story that our hearts tend to tell over and over again. But there's this beautiful thing of of Luke Skywalker's redemption arc. And let's say Darth Vader's redemption arc has to do with Luke going, oh, wait, the outer definitions of fatherhood don't matter. And Luke, you know, spoilers, but I'm sorry, Return of the Jedi came out a long time ago, (laughs) boys and girls. Um, but, but, but that, that redemption has to do with Luke going, look, the outer definition isn't what I want here. I'm going to act with love in this situation. And that's how what keeps him from going over to the dark side, you know, and there's some real life. One of the reasons that the star Wars thing is something that people like me and maybe you too. And, you know, I nerd out about that and was so happy that my kids got old enough to where we could go. This is, this is this, we're going to watch these movies. We're not going to watch the prequels, but we're going to watch these movies. (laughs) You know, that becomes a very important thing because that story is a beautiful story about what love looks like in a funny kind of way. And that's everybody's story. Yeah. But it has to do with not getting what you want, at least not in the outer. Mm -hmm. And it also comes back to that idea that there's something bigger than you out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I feel like a lot of people, and I don't know, I may just be projecting this because it certainly has been my experience during the pandemic, you know, really like, I want to be part of something that's bigger than me right now. Yeah. I, I think, well, I think that we all do. I think that the, the real definitive moments in our lives are those moments where we come face to face with that, whatever it is. And like I said, I don't care if you call it God. That does, that's not interesting to me in the slightest. But you have these moments. Everybody has these moments where something is just so true 
that you're moved by. You feel the truth of it. You know, when something is so beautiful that, that you cry from the beauty of it, when you laugh until you can't breathe, when, when you stay up all night working on some dumb thing that no one else is even ever going to see. Everybody, the, the definitive moments are the moments when we come face to face with that bigger whatever it is. Think about how you feel in those moments when you lose track of time versus how you feel in those moments where misery is currency, like the corporate world or whatever. And you'll know so much about what you're really made of. Yeah. And you also, and this has been a recurring theme with a couple of, of guests on this show, but when, when you are in that thing that where you lose track of time, you can be up all night and not feel exhausted the next day. Because yeah. it energizes you. Whereas the stuff that makes you miserable just grinds you down to the point where you're like, I don't even have the energy to open my eyes anymore, much less do anything else. Yeah. And yeah. It, it it strikes me that, you know, we seem to have, for whatever reason, and I tend to blame the Industrial Revolution a lot for things like this, but we seem sure. to have really created a world for ourselves where we're much more inclined toward the miserable, even though you would think that the things that keep us up at night because we love them would be the things that would naturally pull us in. Yeah. You know, why is that seem not to be where our inner compass is pointing? I mean, I think it actually is. It is. But that's we, the reason the other thing yeah. sucks is because you're fighting your nature. Yeah. But again, it's it. And I think that that industrial revolution has a lot to do with it. I think that's really, really true. I think that that there's this switch that happens. And I suppose you could argue in turn that the industrial revolution, the way it happens has to do with the way that religiosity happens. You could blame the church for it. You can blame, you know, there's this there's this little web, but it happens around that time. And it's really, really interesting. But before that, this is one of the things I mentioned in the book really, really quick. And I wish I had spent more time on it, frankly, but maybe some other, some other book, <laughs> but I mention it because it, it really sparked my curiosity. And that is that before that, before the industrial revolution, before people were equated with machinery, I want to get all Karl Marx on you, but you know exactly what I mean. Before mm -hmm. you became the same thing as a truck or a stapler, a resource, Yep. the model of work was, I want to get so good at what I'm doing that I keep doing it. Now, that seems very primitive, but think about it. If I'm the village blacksmith, my goal is not to ever stop being the blacksmith. My goal is to be renowned for being a blacksmith, where it becomes art. It moves from craft to art. That's the goal. That's the career goal. I'm not going to be the CEO of, of the village smithy or whatever. This I'm just doing this. I want to do this so I can keep doing this. That's the goal. Well, nowadays, post-industrial revolution, the goal is I want to get so good at my job that I don't have to do my job anymore. Because I'll be a manager of that job or I'll be a CEO of that. And I'm not going to do the, the little piddly things that I hate doing now. Well, that means for that to happen, it means that I have to perpetuate the system. And that means I need other people who hate doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's my job is to create more hate <laughs> in a roundabout kind of way. Well, that's a really different thing. And it does happen around that time. Why does it happen? There's a lot of reasons, like I said, I think you can blame a lot of things, but I think the overarching mentality that drives that is this belief that you're not worthy. I've got to earn my worth. And yeah. that means that I need to be miserable about it. And we tell our kids that we, we say 
terrible things to kids. We'd say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Which is literally impossible. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you know this, but that phrase came out. If you can, you, you probably do know this, but, but I don't know if everybody listening knows this. Right. You can, please, if you're listening, when you get done listening to this, look it up because the historical context is that was used to say something you can't do. Mm-hmm. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it was meant to say, nobody does anything alone. We're all in this together. And it's so weird that it's gotten perverted into this idea that everyone should just be on their own and it's me against the world, which is the opposite of the intention. And it's so goofy because it's a physical impossibility. Yeah. But we, we tell people that because I need you to occupy yourself with the impossible because the longer you do that, the more I get to perpetuate this power system that believes I'm better than you. And yeah. that's so messed up. It's just not, it's not okay. But like I said, we can start to take that apart just by realizing that it's okay to do the thing you want to do. And yeah, you, maybe you don't get to do it all day long because you got bills to pay, but you can devote an hour a day, a few minutes a day, do the thing, wake up an hour earlier and feel something, you mm-hmm. know, whatever that is, those moments. But all of that comes back to the basic idea that no matter what you hear, from television or whatever, or your church or your family, or no matter what you hear, you are, and I need everybody listening to hear this, you are fundamentally worthy because the real stuff, the good stuff, the meaningful stuff, whatever you, however you want to define that, you don't earn it any more than you earn thermodynamics or gravity. It just is. You don't earn sunshine. The sun just shines. Yeah. And when you've been in the zone, so to speak, whether that's in a physical activity or making art or writing something or just being in love with something or somebody, that's not earned. It just is. The real things just are. Yeah. And I think that, you know, all of these systems that we've been talking about in so many cases are intended to tear people down rather than building them up and recognizing that inherent worth. You know, I'm I'm thinking of like the average performance review system in a corporate environment oh. or even, you know, I'm, I taught for eight years and there's a part of me sitting here thinking, oh Lord, how did I help <laughs> to perpetuate the idea that my students might not have been worthy enough without even realizing that I was doing it because, you know, you didn't work hard enough on this paper. I mean, and I, I tried very hard not to be the kind of teacher who would judge a kid solely by the quality of what they turned in. I mean, every kid is different. Every kid (laughs) is coming from a different angle, but it's still possible that there are some that just frustrated me enough that I judged them in ways that weren't really justified. Yeah. And I've done that kind of thing too. And it's, it's, it is what it is, but you know, there's only so much you can do in a moment, Yeah, you know, and you're allowed to have times when you're not, you know, working for the cause every nanosecond. <laughs> it's okay. You know, sometimes I watch garbage TV. It doesn't make me less of a person. You know, I, right. you know, I sat through the justice league movie. I'm not proud of it. You know, it's one of those <laughs> things we, we do what we do, but as long as you just, you know, let's give ourselves a little bit of slack because nobody else is going to, if you don't. Nobody's going to love you more than you love yourself. That's just the deal. Give yourself a minute. It's okay. But as long as you have that value in mind that, you know what, fundamentally, the people around me are worth something. You know, people, it's such a funny thing, but 
people ask me all kinds of questions and I open myself up to that. I even, I used to have a, I, it's still out there, but I don't really make movies on it anymore, but I used to have a YouTube channel called ask Dieter where people would send me questions. And I just answer the questions and they could be anything. Um, sometimes they're very religious sort of spiritual stuff. And then one person asked me how I felt about hallucinogens and, you know, just it, whatever, you know, it, it was, it was fun. But so I opened myself up to questions. And one of the questions that came up a lot was, should I give people money, you know, on street corners or when they come up to me in the parking lot and say, I just need bus fare to get to the next town and all that. And, and what should I do about that? And it's not a yes or no thing. It's not a black or white thing because the truth is, you know, darn well that sometimes it's a scam and maybe sometimes it's not. And there's something to be said for saying, look, I don't care what the other person is doing. It's about, am I a charitable person? Am I a giver? Because that's the world needs that, you know? So even if that person is going to go do something bad with it, but then you can go, yeah, but I don't want to fuel that. So where am I with it? And so the answer really that I gave is your job first and foremost is to look that person in the eye and see them as a fellow human being and just take a minute in that space as hokey as that sounds. And then you'll make a decision about what you need to do in that moment. I've given gobs of money to people on street corners. And I've also had days where I've honestly said, I don't have any cash right now. Sorry. You know, don't lie, but that's that was the truth of that moment. And and I didn't feel bad about it in that moment, you know. But the fundamental job you and I have that everybody has is can you see that other person as a person, as a valid human being, just because they didn't drive up next to you because they're standing on a street corner? And if you can do that, the other decisions get easier. So yeah, maybe I didn't say exactly the right thing to that student. Maybe I, you know. I know I'm not supposed to hate other people, but when that one person gets up on you know, in front of a microphone on television and says things that I find politically abhorrent, sometimes I, I go, wow, what a jerk. That's not, that's not helpful. I know it's not helpful. But on the other hand, if I can fundamentally go, wait a minute, they're a human being and they deserve that. They're valid. That student was valid, even though, you know, I, maybe I didn't articulate that. Okay, fine. You know, and you can build on that. We have our moments. Yeah. And with luck, somebody else was there to fill the gap. <laughs> well, that's the other you thing. Know. You know, it's like you're not in charge of the salvation of the planet. You know, it's okay. Yeah. We don't operate it's in okay. a vacuum. Yeah, exactly so. Yeah. So you had mentioned way back when we started, you mentioned listening and listening is something that I'm becoming more and more interested in because certainly doing this podcast has, you know, really been an education in listening. And I'm curious to know how, how you view listening and what you've learned about it. I think it's everything. I think it's literally, well, almost literally everything because the thing is, the world is already in pretty good shape. I mean, obviously there's environmental and stuff like that. There's things we have to do, but in general, the universe, let's make it a little bit bigger. The universe takes care of its own. You know, the universe is really good at infinity. For example, <laughs> you know, you want that, how many, you want to count grains of sand, you know, you want to go that old thing of how many apples is in an apple, you know, you take the apple, you plant the seeds, you get a tree, you get more apples, you plant the seeds. The universe is really good at infinity. How much love is there? You know, how much, how many ideas can there be tomorrow? You know, the universe is really good at this. Maybe I'm not always, but that's on me. 
my job is not to try to impart my will upon the universe. My job is to learn how to listen. You know, a, a good person is a person who can go with the flow as hokey as that sounds. There's something really, really beautiful about that. Learning how to listen and go, wait a minute, this is the thing. And, and I'll put that a different way. How many times have you or me or anybody listening gone, oh, I knew I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. Or I knew I should have done that. Or the car keys were right there. Or I'm watching this program on BBC and there's only like 12 actors in the BBC. So I know that guy was in this other thing. I like, what was he in? The moment you stop looking for it and you just sit there for a second, you remember, oh, he was in Father Brown. It's that thing. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with learning how to listen instead of trying to fill that space. And unfortunately, it's something that we are, we as a culture are not super good at. And in fact, I don't want to sound too doom and gloom, but getting uh, uh, progressively worse at is just sitting in the silence. When you think about how many inventions, breakthroughs, revolutions came about from boredom or frustration, and we are a culture that is not good at being bored. Yeah. You know, when you're in line at Chipotle and there's 12 people in front of you and everybody's on their phone, you know, or I can't be in the car and, you know, my son is 23 and he's so much smarter than I am and he's amazing. But every time I get in the car with him, there's about five minutes of him finding the right music on his phone that connects up to the car. And that's valid. But on the other hand, I'm like, we're going, it's, it's a mile away. We're going to the grocery store, <laughs> you know, and it's that, and it's, it's that times a million things. When I was a teenager, I didn't have GPS because there's no such thing because I'm old and we would just drive around. And I remember driving mm -hmm. around just like, where does this road go? And that's not a thing. And look, yeah. this is not me going, these kids today, get off my lawn. But this is me saying, I think we could benefit from learning how to cultivate silence. What if you just were bored? Yeah. You know, Jenny and I have a thing, my wife, Jenny and I, where on, we have no tech Tuesdays and oh, it's kind of hokey, but, <laughs> but we just sit, we just sit there and maybe we'll put on some music and, you know, we'll just sit there together. And it just so happens that she's an incredible, brilliant, dynamic person, and she's fun to talk to. But whoever you're with, what if you just turned the music off when you drove the car? What if you sat on the couch and you didn't have NBC tell you what's cool? NBC, that's how old I am. Netflix. <laughs> but you know what I mean? What if? What if you didn't have to be entertained? What if just sitting there was more important than, than whatever? Nowadays, it's very hard to just watch a movie without also playing and Candy Crush. Right. You know, or whatever it is. And you get so much more out of it. You know, you want to be a good husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, put the phone away, put the distractions away and just listen. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad said, if you want to have friends, you want to make friends, ask a person questions about themselves and listen. And that's a little bit of a, like a Norman Vincent Peale technique, I suppose, but it actually works because learn how to listen. Beautiful things happen out of that. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, the fact that we are, and Lord knows I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, always glued to our screens. You know, I'm, mm. I will stand in line and be looking at, you know, Twitter or whatever, checking my email. And, but, and even the whole time I'm doing it, I'm thinking, this is stupid. I do not need to be doing this right now. Yeah. But I think that also contributes to the fact that we seem to have gotten bad at seeing each other as, you know, real valid people just like us. 
Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Well, and there's a lot to talk about there too. I mean, um, Jaron Lanier, who's a, who was a innovator in the field of like virtual reality and social media stuff way before anybody else. He wrote a book and now I can't remember. I think it's called the case to delete Facebook, something like that. But his name is Jaron Lanier, brilliant, brilliant guy. But he talks about this phenomenon that when you see somebody online, there's a tendency to not see them as human beings. Mm -hmm. And you can say anything. And I mean, look at all of the terrible things that happen because you forget they're real. And there's this, this feeling of combine that with this feeling of, I can't sit and listen to go back to what we were talking about a minute ago. I can't be open. Instead, I've got to fill that space with my stuff. And all of a sudden, everybody feels like they have to write a review for everything. And what, you know, I don't want to look at this as me sounding like a really old person, but what happened if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> you know, there's something for that, you know, that, that, that actually helps. So again, to, to turn this into something that we can learn from, I would say to people, just take a minute, recognize that, that, yeah, you know what? I'm a little bit socially awkward too. I don't really want to have a conversation all the time when I'm in line for food or at the movie theater. I recognize that that's hard for me. I do really good on a stage in front of hundreds of people and that kind of stuff. Talking to you in this way, this is great, but it's very difficult to go make a conversation with a total stranger in a restaurant or whatever. I'm not good at that. Some people are, most people aren't. I get it. The phone is a great way to mask social awkwardness because I don't have to talk to you. I'm talking to to my phone. I'm taking a picture of my nachos or whatever it is. That's the thing. Well, okay, I get it. And I get that you get this great serotonin hit from that or from lining up fruit in a row. Awesome. But the thing is your brain just checks the box of, I got a thing done, but your brain doesn't know that you didn't actually get anything done. You've simulated it. It's virtual reality, but you can get that same serotonin hit from going, I actually connected with a human being. Yeah. And And social media is, you know, artificial connection. It's not real connection. Yeah. Your friends are not your friends. I mean, (laughs) right. And I, I deleted Facebook. I'm still on Instagram and Twitter, uh, weaning myself, you know, in some ways, but it's a nice way to connect. But I got to the point with Facebook where I just couldn't, it just felt so silly to me. Um, I, I don't think anybody needs to know the results of the poll about what kind of pirate or salad dressing I am. So I got done with that, you know? And so it, it, it felt, it felt good. I couldn't believe how good it felt to get off of Facebook. Yeah. I did the same thing about four and a half years ago. And I, I definitely had withdrawal for a week or two. Same. And once it was over, it was just like, wow, I cannot believe how much I don't miss that. It's like, well, it's like when you break up with a dysfunctional partner where you're like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I was putting up with some crazy stuff, man. Yeah. And you just don't realize because other animals are, are engineered by evolution to, to have a specific thing. They have wings so that they can fly or giraffe has a long neck to reach the high fruit, whatever it is. Us humans don't evolve in those ways. Instead, our gift is that we can adapt to anything. You know, talk about Buckminster Fuller saying, you know, we just adapt. We build ourselves scuba gear. Now we can be underwater. You know, it's that kind of a thing. Well, that's our skill. That's what humans bring to the table is we can adapt. In Right now, we don't have to evolve into it. We can just adapt to it. But it also means that we can adapt to some real miserable, weird, stupid, goofy, awful situations. How did we get yep. to this place where we believe that there's this, this external reward and we're supposed to make our, ourselves miserable? Because it was presented to us and we adapted to it. 
And then we taught our kids to adapt to it too. And so on and so on. And they'll tell their friends and they'll tell their friends, you know, it's, it's yeah, that now thing. it's just accepted as that's yeah. reality when it's yeah. not really. Well, and you know, I had this wonderful moment when I was in seminary, we had to watch this movie called the mission, Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not a real upper of a movie. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> these terrible things happen in the end, after all these terrible things happen, this one person goes, well, it's the way of the world. And this other person says, no, no, such have we made the world. Mm. And I think about that from time to time because like, oh, wait a minute, this world is like a democracy and everything I do and say and think is a vote for the kind of world I want to have. And so by and large, I'm going to vote for love. And sometimes it's just as simple as that. Yeah. There's been a quote that's been echoing through my head as we've been talking from Babylon 5, which is, we are the universe trying to understand itself. I like that. And, and I that's think it. that, that's it. you know, when we stare at our screens, we think we're understanding things, but I think we're more likely to understand things when we actually talk to each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and that makes me think of a, a Mother Teresa quote where she said, God has no hands but yours. Mm. And it's, it's, it's in a funny way, if you squint at that, it's the same sentiment in a, in a kind of yeah. way. You can wait for something to happen to you. And that's, that's a byproduct of this eventual reward mentality is that someday my ship's going to come in. Someday, all of a sudden things will change. Well, no, go change the thing. Specifically change yourself. Because you're, you are, if you want to say the divine, or if you want to say creativity, inspiration, art, truth, beauty, love, whatever that is, you're that in action. You are love and art yearning for itself. As hokey as that might sound, you know it's true because it feels right. You know it when you're in it, you know? So do that instead of waiting around for something. Get good at it. And beautiful things can start to happen. Yeah, I like that. I like that image. And, you know, I'm, I can feel the, the goosebumps going up my arm, which is the <laughs> sign that we tend to ignore. You know, when we were talking yeah. about this earlier, I was thinking of, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons where something happens and, you know, Bugs gets whacked on the head and rings like a bell. And like, that's that feeling. Yeah. And we tend to ignore it. And I actually have a line from your book highlighted here that I feel like goes with that, where you said, what if instead of trying to figure out your life, you tried to feel it out? What if your mm-hmm. heart led the way? Which I feel like is the piece of advice that we all should get when we're kids, but we don't because it scares mom and dad. And they think that yeah. that means we'll be the person begging for a bus fare. And so it's no, go, go join the big corporate office that yeah. will make you miserable because that's the only way that we know to, for you to be safe. And then you're on your own. Oh, yeah. It's incredibly well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, people listening to this, maybe your parents messed you up by telling you stuff like that. I totally get it. And I had a different experience of my parents messing me up. It was different, but I, I understand, you know, I really, really do. Please understand that it was almost hundred percent certain that they meant well. Absolutely. Because this is, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to get you through the world and this is what goes on. This is what's valuable in our world. So they taught you that. And maybe you got really good at adapting to ignoring those goosebumps because there's no cash value in the goosebumps. You know, maybe you got really good at ignoring what your heart said because somebody said, well, you got to pay your dues and be miserable and set your dreams aside because who the heck are you? When you know in your heart that every hero was made out of the same stuff you are. And I think that, that, that any hero, when you really press them, 
you know, and you can go spiritual heroes, you know, I've got mine, uh, or you could go heroes in the movies or books or whatever. At the end of the day, any hero would say something like, look, I'm not any different from you. The only thing different about me is that I know who I am. Ooh, yes. And then that becomes your job. You go, well, then who the heck am I? And you can't learn it by how much money you have. That's not definitive. That bike that you got for Christmas can't tell you who you are. Whether or not somebody pays attention to you, that can't tell you who you are. There's something inside that is trying desperately to come out through your art, through your writing, through your ability to be a caring human in the world, to pick up a shovel and help, you know, that whatever that is for you. And you already listening to this right now, you already have a sense of what you ought to be doing. It's okay. You don't have to quit your job and join the circus. You can do it a little (laughs) bit. You can volunteer Mm -hmm. for something. You can write a couple of words a day, pick up a journal, do a thing, go get a paint by numbers kit. There's a thing you can do a little bit. And if it feels like, oh, this might be the right thing to do, then do it. And it might be different tomorrow, but you will have grown. Yes. And that's how the world gets better. And you'll have done something you loved in the process, which provides its own energy and momentum to keep doing more of it. Yeah. I mean, we need to get really good at taking care of each other in our culture. I I really think that we're not doing a great job at taking care of each other. I get that. And I'm not saying this, what I'm about to say is not, I'm not saying that that's not important. We need to feed people and clothe people and shelter. Yes. But we've been taught that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the end all be all. That's all that we're supposed to be doing. But the thing is, when you love somebody, you'll stand out in the rain. When you do something that's meaningful, that hierarchy of needs is meaningless. You don't care if you're hungry. You skip a meal to work on that painting. We begin to realize that who we are is not defined by food and clothes and shelter. And that's when we become dangerous in the most interesting kind of way. Yeah. And and I think that we're all hungry for that sense of meaning, which is probably part of why I inhaled your book. Because it it does feel like most of us go through the day and we're basically just on that hamster wheel. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's fine while you're distracted by the hamster wheel. But when you stop being distracted long enough to say, sorry, why am I on this hamster wheel again? Does this mean anything? (laughs) Then then a lot of us run back to the hamster wheel because we'd rather not think about that question. Well, it's the matrix, right? It's the it's Mm -hmm. there's a lesson in that movie. You know, some people want to get plugged back in because it's so comfortable. Right. Right. It's the choice. And I was thinking of that earlier with the human resources part. You know, we're batteries. Yeah. Yeah. That's how human resources views a lot of, you know, people. You know, I was thinking about you. Did it, did it resonate or register? I'm trying to say both at the same time. That never works. Reginate. Yeah. (laughs) Did, Did it hit differently back in the days when they called that personnel? Did people seem more human? Yeah, the days when we called it personnel, that when we put the word human in it and followed it with resources, I think it had to have. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it had to. I think there's something really valuable about seeing people as persons and personal personnel versus, well, I'll tell you what, my very first day at Google, um, we had this huge orientation and most of it was about how great Google was and all of that. And there was this one guy that got up and talked about security and Google is a very, very secure company and they take it very, very seriously and hats off to them for all that they do and all that, not saying anything bad, but the guy giving the, the, the presentation about security kept referring to people who weren't at Google as humans. 
So we would say, humans do this with their passwords. And it was so creepy. I'm like, where are you from? Are you a Vulcan? What are you talking about? And I know he didn't speak for the company. It was just this guy's thing that he thought was a cool thing to say, but it really resonated with me how much that didn't resonate with me. Yeah. It was such a weird thing. So it's not personnel, personal, it's human resources, which is like something an alien would say. Right. And it's like a Soylent Green scenario where, you know, it, I'm I'm a sandwich. It's like, what is this? It's, it's not, that's not valid. And once again, I think it is the natural outpicturing. It is the natural evolutionary step that begins with Industrial Revolution, thinking of how many widgets can I churn out? Mm-hmm. And how can I optimize this person, churn out as many as possible? Well, of course, eventually, I'm no different than a delivery truck because that's that makes the most sense for that modality. Right. And it's not your boss's fault. This is the paradigm, but we need to change the paradigm. Even if it means that you're not going to be a billionaire, that's going to have to be okay. Cause yeah. really there, we don't need any more rich jerks. Right. I'm sorry. We, we just don't, we got, we got a lot of them <laughs> and they're not helping anything. No, no. Well, we are right around an hour. And I want to be conscious of your time, but there is one other thing that I just need to ask you, if that's cool. Yeah. So people who are listening cannot see this, but on Dieter's wall, he has a, what appears to be an authentic full length Doctor Who fourth Doctor scarf with the hat, which is how (laughs) I knew that Dieter and I were going to get along, but not that I really had any doubts, but that was, (laughs) was the final sign. And I'm just curious to know. I mean, I started watching Doctor Who when I was in like ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And so it, I didn't realize until, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, maybe how much of an influence it had on the way that I see life and the world and our place in it. And I'm just curious to know if you have any sense of how much it's influenced you. Well, I encountered the doctor when I was a little kid. My parents were big BBC nerds, and it, it didn't hurt that we lived in a little town in Iowa where their church was at the time when I was little, and so there was nothing going on, and there was we didn't have cable. There weren't a lot of channels, and so, you know, PBS would show BBC stuff, you know, and so when I was probably way too young for it, I was watching Monty Python, for example, <laughs> and, and Doctor Who was a big deal, and Tom Baker, the fourth doctor, was my first doctor, and so... He's he weighs heavily on my psyche, him in particular, but I like Jody Whitaker an awful lot. And I like Matt Smith an awful lot too. But any of them are good because what what I got out of that was the the crazy and in fact uh uh subversive, let's say, idea that if you're really smart, you're also playful. Mm. Because I think that a lot of times we are fed the idea that knowing a lot closes you off and makes you stodgy, ivory tower stuff. When the doctor knows more than anybody, and he's the happiest, most childlike person, because the more you know about the universe, the more you realize that it that there's love, that it's fun, that this is something to laugh about and have wonder at. That's the defining characteristic of the doctor, no matter who's playing the doctor, is wonder. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that. And I think about the doctor all the time because I want to make sure that I keep in touch with that, that my ideal is to open up more and more instead of closing off more. 
And uh, David Tennant's incarnation of the doctor, um, he was talking to some bad guy and there was a lot of people that died and the bad guy said, well, it wasn't anybody important. And David Tennant says something like, I've never met anybody who wasn't important. And I think yeah. about that a lot. That's like know? the worst thing you could say to the doctor. If you really exactly. tick him off, that's and what so you should say. <laughs> in, a, in a world where, you know, and we talked about Star Wars and obviously that made a big impact on me as well. And, and all of that. But in a world where a lot of our heroes have to do with shooting stuff, as a little kid, I encountered this idea that the doctor would not hurt anyone. Nobody dies today. You know, that's a Doctor Who line, mm -hmm. you know, and I thought, wow, that's so much closer to what feels right to me. And so this idea yeah. of, of wonder and play and that the universe is a crazy, weird, silly place to marvel at you know, is so deep in, in who I am. I have a sonic screwdriver in the other room. It's, it's, this is, you know, this is the thing. And so, yeah, anybody listening, go, go watch some Doctor Who. The, the old Tom Baker ones are pretty cheesy. Now the special effects are awful, but he's so great. But Matt Smith, Jodie Whittaker, any of them, it'll teach you something. Yeah. Even, even with the, you know, low budget special effects in the old ones. There's always an idea or an ideal, often both, behind it that compels mm -hmm. the story regardless is what I yeah. always find. And absolutely. And you know, I I discovered what I had learned from it when I sat down to make a list. And maybe it was maybe it was for the 50th anniversary. So that's actually a few years more than I would have thought. Maybe it was a little <laughs> bit after that. But you know, whatever, whatever year it was, it was that number of things that I learned, you know, and, oh, and I, I, just, I started I out just thinking, oh, I'll probably have like five things. And, you know, after you get past reverse the polarity of the neutron flow and silly things <laughs> like that, I discovered this, all of these layers that were so much deeper and more interesting. And that was when I thought, well, okay, it's like the 53rd anniversary. I'll see if I can come up with 53 things, you know, and nice. And I posted it on Tumblr where things are very hard to find. <laughs> if you don't catch <laughs> I'd like it, to like, see right that though. Moment. That's cool. Yeah. I have it somewhere. I'll send it to you. Cause I think Please I may have posted it on my website too, but, um, but yeah, things like, you know, power is an idea rather than a concrete thing. And we give people power mm -hmm. by deciding that they deserve it. But that means that we can take it back, yeah. which is the part yeah. that we tend to forget. Yeah. You know, there are more of us than there are of them. If somebody's abusing their power, we, you know, should be able to take it back. And, you know, just random things like that but well yeah and like, so often yeah. so often in the stories the the arc is such that the person who is the villain you begin to realize by the end of the story that they're just really sad mm. you know and i can't think of how many stories where the doctor ends up trying to help them mm -hmm. in some way not help them beat up people or whatever but or oppress but help them get to to wherever it was that they were trying to go you know, in one right. way or the other, that happens a lot. That's sort of a doctor who trope is you get to the thing and whoever the, the human companions are with the doctor are often puzzled that why are you helping them? And he's like, they're, they're just misunderstood. They're sad. Let's, let's get them so that they stop hurting people. Let's get them to happy because right. happy works, you know, right. and there's some really incredible, beautiful lessons in all of that, but it's just, yeah, it's so that's deep in my, uh, my DNA for sure. Yeah. Mine too. So I had a feeling that that might be the case for you. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic and wonderful. And I'm so glad that we 
made the time to do this. And I hope that everybody will go check out your book. We'll put a link to that in the show notes and, you know, all your other various links and websites and stuff <laughs> so that people can find you. But, but yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a lot of fun and an honor. Thanks a lot. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much to Dieter Randolph for joining me and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please share it with a friend. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. 